Ahoy! And welcome to the Sea Captain Way podcast with Phil Bender and Greg Patton, where we help listeners navigate the uncharted waters, personal and professional growth. The Sea Captain Way is about energizing top performers to take on risks and push beyond their comfort zone to pursue life-changing goals and achieve peak performance. We're going to help you build your vision by showing you how to break free of boundaries that are holding you back. All right, Phil, so we get to have two podcasts in a row where we're able to catch up with old friends who are now rock stars in their field. Today, we're lucky to have John Prosperi on the Sea Captain Coaching Podcast. John is a financial services industry executive who has served in leadership roles at some of the top wealth management firms in the country. His experience includes working at Alliance Bernstein, Fidelity Investments, and American Funds. His responsibilities have included relationship management, sales, and distribution. In these roles, John helped his clients meet investor needs and created a destination for uniquely successful individuals. He's also the only person who's ever written a testimonial on my LinkedIn profile. So thanks for that, Frost. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how to pay you back. I must have been really bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, if that's all it takes to get on his podcast, then we we ought to consider something else. We open the gates. Yeah, right, John. John, it's great to have you. Obviously, uh, we have a past. Greg has a past with you, and we have a relationship going all the way back to college. So it's always fun when we have another layer of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to see what you've done trajectory-wise in your career, the great family that you've raised, all these great things—it's uh, neat to see. Great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, and I am a big fan of the podcast. I have to say, oh. I, I do think though, when Greg asked me originally, I thought he said smartless. So I was kind of confused. I thought it was going to be with Jason Bateman, but you two, I guess it's going to be okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. I'm the poor man's Jason Bateman. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's let's get started. Uh, John, you've been a wholesaler, managing director at some of the top wealth management firms in the country. You're a pioneer and thought leader in developing the model of how these firms market their services to advisors instead of directly to retail investors. Why do you think this approach is effective and how has it evolved over the years for you? I've been doing this for a long time. I know Mm -hmm. I don't look it, but uh, I'm pretty old. (laughs) And uh, I I would say that when I got into the business in really the late 80s, the example I always remember was Peter Lynch, who used to manage a fund called Fidelity Magellan, which was at the time the most popular no-load mutual fund in the industry. From the period of 1977 till I think he retired in 1990, the fund had a return of 29% uh, average annual rate of return. And Fidelity calculated that the average investor in the Fidelity fund actually lost money. And I think that finding in the early 90s kind of led to the conclusion that, boy, in the financial services industry, our role is really just to keep investors invested keep them from making emotional decisions about their investments that A, get them investing after the fund has already had a great year or B, you know, selling when the fund has a down year and therefore, you know, not participating in the actual 29% a year MGEN ready return. And I think it started out that way early on in my career that we really were kind of helping advisors to, uh, you know, really try to prevent clients from making bad decisions, just being really a buffer, if nothing else, between mm-hmm. the client and their investments. And it has really evolved over the last 30, 40 years 
to now becoming an industry that is really much more focused on issues outside of producing or generating investment returns. Because what we've learned in the industry is that what's much more important than generating an 11% return or a 10% return is the bigger issues that clients have. And the examples I always think about are like the you know survey that, that I participated in years ago. One of my companies was the average investor with $20 million or more in investable assets. What do you think their number one concern is? $20 million or more investable assets. Not losing it. Exactly right. Am I going to run out of money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Am I going to run? And when you think about the answer to you know the answer, I, am I going to run out of money if I have twenty million dollars? It seems kind of insane. But when you think about people with complexity, there are a lot of things going on in their lives that could ultimately lead to them losing that money beyond just you know lifestyle creep when you get to that kind of wealth strands. But it's more, you know, you've got a kid who has maybe a drug issue or, you know, mm -hmm. a family member that you can't say no to, or, mm -hmm. you know, there's other things going on in your life that a really good financial advisor will help that client understand how they can help them solve that problem that they didn't even think there was a solution to. And so I, I'm, gonna, I'm rambling here, but I, I think no, the no. other thing that I would add to that is that the basis of all that. The basis of that engagement with the client and your ability as a financial advisor to help that client achieve kind of an outcome that they didn't even think was possible is all financial planning. And I, I've explained mm -hmm. this. I did a, a meeting years ago down in Dallas. I remember a large brokerage firm and I'm training on sort of the, the financial planning process to a group of advisors. And I had a very senior advisor say to me at the end of my presentation, he said, you know, that's all well and good. And I get that the firm wants us to do financial planning as all firms do. But I had one of my best clients come to me a week ago after I had done this big plan for them and presented them with this book of information from the financial plan. Client came in and said, Joe, my daughter's getting a divorce and I've got to help her out. I need 60 grand out of my account. I need to give to my daughter uh, to help her out with this divorce situation. So there goes the whole plan. Why did I even bother wasting all that time and effort on doing mm -hmm. a financial plan if now the whole plan is out the door? It was, a, uh, for me, a light bulb moment where I thought, okay, this guy sees a financial plan as a transaction. I'm going to put together yeah. this pretty book. You're going to sit it mm -hmm. on uh, the shelf behind you and never look at it again. And you and I are never going to talk about it again. And so I said, how about if you did this instead? When that client came in and said, hey, I need the $60,000, you say, hey, I, I get it. I'd probably do the same thing. Let's, though, rerun your plan showing the $60,000 withdrawal coming out. Let's figure out together whether maybe you could pay her more, maybe a little bit less, or how, what kind of an impact would that have on your future? And so it's all about the planning process, in my view, is all mm -hmm. about painting a picture of the future that the client didn't even know was possible. So mm -hmm. when you're going through that planning process and you're asking open-ended questions, every time that client gives you an answer, it's another brushstroke on this painting. And at the mm -hmm. end of the planning process, what the client should have and you have is a beautiful painting of the future that the client designed. And if mm -hmm. you've been able to accomplish that through the planning process, that client is going to put all of their assets with you in an effort to achieve whatever that painting represents to them. And so you've got to look as a financial advisor at that mm -hmm. process as being the basis of how you engage clients and prospects going forward, as opposed mm -hmm. to, can I generate a 10% rate of return versus your 
current portfolio is at 9%. It's just not meaningful. So the industry has right. evolved in a real positive way over the last 30 years in that regard. Yeah, it sure is. And what a powerful statement ph- philosophically right out of the gate, Craig. I know, best, uh, best first question answer of all podcasts. Yeah. It's like Jedi time. Oh, my God. Process. I had some yeah. time to practice, so it's good. <laughs> Guns blazing. If he had a mic, I'd ask him to drop right. it. But the uh, <laughs> but I I will say this and and how and Greg, you know this. How congruent is that with the Sea Captain yep. methodology, especially in our financial services practice? Because of course, Sea Captain's now in twenty industries, but financial services is really its origin. So one of the things that you you're talking about, John, that I routinely do in in my coaching is talk about if the market's down, let's go back to the last three years before where where we hit metrics and then realize that it's the goals that matter and maybe it's the 6% average return over time that matters. Okay. So you got three years where it works, one year where it doesn't, it doesn't mean the plan is, is, uh, irrelevant. It's just adjusted. Mm -hmm. And you just gave a great concrete example of that. So, yeah. And you just, I think John really crystallized in the, you know, I, I really admire you as a pioneer. You were ahead of your time back when I started working in financial services, as far as supporting advisors in their role and giving them the tools that they need, you know, to help clients. And that, you know, you taught me so many different things over the years, took a bunch of strokes off my game So I bow to you on that one, but we'll keep things moving here. So one of the challenges many financial services organizations face is trying to grow and scale the business, especially for those in leadership trying to help emerging leaders hone productivity skills. What advice do you offer your financial advisor clients who own their businesses about how to get the most from new team members? I like the fact that you said who own their businesses because... I also had an interaction with them last few years in Salt Lake City, Utah, where a branch manager of a large wirehouse firm asked me to come in to sit down with teams in his branch that were not functioning well. And I spent two days with four different teams and individual members of each of those teams trying to get to the bottom of what the dysfunction was about and how it happened and, you know, really kind of acting as a psychiatrist in the sense, but... What I learned was the whole problem was that the wirehouse firm had put these pairs together as a team without any sort of consultation or direction. Mm. And so in those cases, it's kind of hard to, you know, dismantle what the firm has done. But when you own your own firm, you know, it's only on you. It's it's a dysfunctional team situation. You have no one to blame but yourself. And so the advice or guidance we recommend around proper and effective teaming and really comes down to three things. Number one is a really detailed, specific, and explicit description of the roles and responsibilities of the team members. And it doesn't matter really kind of how junior a person is on a team, what their role is. It needs to be very, very specific and very clearly laid out. And here's the one thing that I wrinkle that I add to that is mm-hmm. that I want a third party to review that as well, because I think what happens sometimes is when we've been in the business for as long as we all have, we kind of make our own little mental shortcuts. And so when we say to somebody, this is, I want you to, to work on performance reporting, we have our own idea in mind as to what that actually means. And so when you have mm-hmm. someone who's a third party review those roles and responsibilities, you can get better um, more explicit descriptions of what that actually details. 
as opposed mm-hmm. to just saying, you know, this is what I want you to do. The second part is kind of an, an accountability coach or an accountability specific statement of accountability. So both mm-hmm. for you and for the person who's becoming a member of the team. And, and what I really like to add to that is that the accountability, while it needs to be 360 degrees, everyone on that team needs to be held accountable and needs to see examples of others being held accountable to the overall goals and missions of, of the team. But in addition to that, I think what really helps is when individual team members understand the consequences of their not executing on their role exactly the way it needs to be done. And so it's, I, I think that's a crucial element is, again, we make the assumption that people will understand if I don't get this report done in time, I failed. But what are the actual implications of that? In other words, what will our clients think if we don't get that, that done in time? And how does that, again, kind of tee into our mission that we put together as mm-hmm. a team? And then mm-hmm. the, the final part is a communication plan. And that's a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly communication plan. Here are the meetings we're going to have. Here's what will be detailed at each of those meetings, whether it be the daily meeting, the weekly meeting, the quarterly meeting, monthly meeting, whatever that schedule might be. But each one of those meetings needs to be, you know, contain more or less detailed information depending on the uh, sequence of those meetings. Um, yeah. So those are the three key elements, I think, to making sure that team members feel like they're part of the team, they're, they connect to the goal and the mission of the team overall, they understand if they don't ho- hold up their part of the bargain, what the implications will be to the success of the team and the individual team members as well. And so they, you know, there, there's really become very few excuses. And I think the bottom line of that is when I started teaching this, I started applying it to my own team. And mm-hmm. what I saw was in my review meetings, and there were far fewer issues of, well, wait a minute, I did way better than that. Why am I getting this rating? Because mm-hmm. I stuck to a, a more consistent cons- communication plan, provided that sort of feedback on a, on a way more frequent basis. And when we got to the year-end review, it was kind of like, it was nothing. You know, it was a half-hour meeting as opposed to what used to be a two-hour meeting at the year-end review. Right. So good. Greg, does that sound familiar? I know. I've known uh, John since I was you know, a freshman in high school, and I've known, we've both known him since we were 18, but you guys are so similar wired in, in terms of your professional philosophy of how you work with your advisor client. It's un- kind of uncanny, to be honest. I, I did not uh, lead or guide the witness. I haven't showed him any of this. <laughs> you see, I don't think John's really taken a deep dive and seen all the curriculum, but dang. That was a, a spot on in terms of the lane we're in, you're in. By the way, so that, and, and that's not a surprise because I know Phil has been very successful in his career. I would expect that these things that I'm talking about, which most people would, no one's going to disagree with anything that I said, but the mm-hmm. challenge is actually executing on executing that. Executing Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like when you've got all yeah. these emails and everything coming in, it's like, oh man, I'll put that meeting off until next week. I'm just going to skip it this week. And mm-hmm. the more that stuff starts to happen, it starts building up. And the next thing you know, you know what you should be doing, but you're not doing it because life's got in the way. So I think that's the real benefit of what you guys do in coaching is you are holding people accountable to their own goals and objectives, what they are planning to or want to execute on, you're holding them accountable to it, which is huge. Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason why people don't execute on this. And they can hide. You know, I, I always have this philosophy, it's impossible to be a pest if you are always leading with the client's goals. 
So it's like you keep calling somebody to get something done or you become that mirror for them. What are they going to say? Oh, you're make it, you're annoying the hell out of me because all you pay attention to is my goals. <laughs> it's, it's absurd, right? And so, and so what coaching is and what, you know, uh, in whatever space it is, is simply keeping the client's goals in mind at all times and leading every meeting with them leading every meeting with core values, vision, mission, so that everybody in the room knows why we're here, who we are, why we're here, and why we're doing this. So, John, this is excellent. Uh, so, uh, so, John, I've heard you mention that top-performing practices have healthy teams relative to their internal dynamics. What are some of the characteristics of these groups that separate them from the pack? That's a really good question because I, in my 30, whatever year career, I can tell you that there have been few teams, relatively speaking, and I've met with literally thousands and thousands of teams in this financial services industry all over the country, in all 50 states almost. And there are few, relatively speaking, when I walk out of the meeting where I think, oh my gosh, those people are great. I would love to work with them. I would love to have my parents work with them. <laughs> And it's it's a bit sad in the sense that you'd think there'd be more. But again, I think it all comes down to kind of those teams' ability to execute on their own goals and mission. And so, you know, in some cases, it's clear that a team doesn't even really have a stated goal or mission. They're just trying to make as much money as they can. And that's a dime a dozen, quite honestly. That's that's the majority of teams that, that I see out there. And those are not teams that put in me this great feeling of, gosh, those are great people that I'd love to work with. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But when you do see those teams where you feel like, gosh, those are just great people, I would love to even work with them, you know, mm -hmm. as an employee, in addition to, you know, having them run my portfolio, what have you. I think they take that first part of kind of establishing an effective team, which is to, you know, be very explicit about roles and responsibilities, and they connect that kind of implicitly to the goals and the mission of that team. So, mm -hmm. you know, our goal is to help wealthy families live a life that they didn't think was possible, you know, something like that as a, as a mission statement. So what would my role be as the person who answers the phone? How would that connect right, to right. that mission? So they do a great job of having everyone on the team connect to the specific mission and again, what we just had kind of talked about in between questions there, which is the execution of that is the key because we can all say, this is what we need to do as a team. We can all mm -hmm. get in a room together, do a strategic planning meeting. We can line out uh, what our strategic plan is, our mission, our goals. And then here's what your responsibility is to help us get there as a member of this team. But it's that execution and accountability on an ongoing basis that keeps them there. And then, you know, that accountability factor is just huge as well. And the best high-performing mm -hmm. teams, what I see is a 360 degrees of accountability that's happening all the time. So if I, yep. as the senior member of that team, if I do something that is not consistent with what you know I should be doing on an on a mm -hmm. ongoing basis... It's definitely going to impact your willingness to execute as well on your part of getting us to our goals and response and, and mission uh, as a mm -hmm. team as well. So I have mm -hmm. to set a good example. It has to be 360 degrees and the best teams mm -hmm. do that on an ongoing basis. And the communication piece as well, they do very, very well. But the one other piece that I think I would add in terms of what I observe out there is that from a hiring standpoint, 
I tend to see the best teams hiring from a lot from referrals. So there's that referrals from existing clients, referrals from you know centers of influence in their community, from existing employees. Uh, they're able to expand that network of employees, grow their team through referrals because they create an environment that people want to work with. So people want it who work for them want to tell their friends and family who they know are also good people and would fit in well on the team. Hey, this is a great place to work, and they grow their their team that way. And uh, I've seen a lot of consistency of. Mm-hmm. of uh, execution from those teams as well. Yeah, Greg, real quick, uh, core values match. When core values matches with clients, when it matches with team, that's the reason why the clients are such a good resource because there's a core values match there. So the people that come on board behaviorally are already 90% of the way there because they believe they see the world the same way, Right. Now, it's not so politics, true. religion. It's not Cubs Cardinals type see the world <laughs> the same way. It's it's that they see the world the same way from a value perspective. So, John, I'm telling you, if my clients are listening in today, they would swear that I prepped you on some of this stuff. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it is very uh, the, it's the way fascinating. Like, you both hammer that accountability theme. Can I give yeah. you a real quick example of this? Uh, that yeah. It's kind yeah. of a cool story, but yeah. it's one of my favorites. So one of my favorite advisors is in San Francisco and he used to work for us. He actually was, used to be on my team and he, uh, he now runs a very successful RAA on the West coast. His market is professional athletes. And, um, I did a review meeting with him a few years ago in his office and we're reviewing a portfolio of ours that he uses with his clients. And I look across the table and here's Kelly Olinick. And Isaiah Thomas, both, you know, exist current NBA players at the time, and they both have their baseball caps on backwards. And I think Isaiah Thomas might have had a hoodie on at the time, but they're taking notes. They're sitting, taking notes on what I'm saying. And, you know, I'm... Wait, you know, they're in the meeting that you're in? Oh, yeah. They're across the table from me, and they're taking notes on what I'm saying. And I'm like, well, what in the world? I mean, she has clients. His own clients come to a review meeting from an investment manager and oh. the reason for that is what he requires of his clients who are, again, athletes, professional athletes in all different sports, is that they do a summer internship with him. Or if their season is during the summer, they come in and they work as an intern uh, with him in his office for a, in a you know, period of time. Because what he wants them to understand is all that he does for them. It's not just about the lifestyle of a professional athlete and what I can do to fund your lifestyle as a financial advisor. It's about all the other stuff, the insurance wow. and protection of your, yeah. of, of your portfolio, of your assets, of your home, of your, your family, and, and creating this beautiful painting of the future that mm-hmm. you know your family is going to benefit from by the way I go mm-hmm. about it. So he has them sit in on all of his meetings so that they understand what he's doing is complete transparency there. So to your point about having clients understand your mission, um, this is a guy that eats, sleeps that on a daily basis and he has an incredibly successful practice. But again, you contrast that to all the other financial advisors out there who are courting professional athletes and saying, you know, hey, I'll give you this, I'll give, provide you with that and access to this and none of that. He's like, nah, no, wow. that's not what we're about. We want you to come actually work with us for no pay and learn about this business in a very detailed way. 
and we'll have a better relationship as a result. So you've got great clients. You're very loyal to them as a result. I can't believe this is the first time I'm hearing this story. This is awesome. Are there flying chest bumps at the end of the meetings with these professional yeah. athletes? Or <laughs> yeah. do they just shake hands like everybody else? It was just very off-putting, I guess. I just, you know, the, oh in an environment God. like that, you just rarely see, you know, professional yeah. athletes. Yeah. So they were taking copious notes and following along with everything. It was, mm-hmm. it was uh, really interesting. Yeah. Neat. Great story. Wow. Uh, so, John, we interviewed you for an article on the Sea Captain Coaching blog about affecting prospecting practices back during COVID. And you talked about what you referred to as the trust equation as it pertains to working to build relationship with prospects and referral sources. Can you expand on on what that is for us, the trust equation? Yeah, I mean, it's really, and simply put, trustworthiness is, it's a consistent experience of goodwill and professional competency over time. That's it in a nutshell. I mean, you can look it up on Google and you can see a more detailed uh, uh, equation, but that's really what it is. And it's just this consistent experience. I mean, if you really break down every word of what that sentence just was, consistency, experience, goodwill, what does that actually mean? Goodwill Mm -hmm. just means that you get me. As a client, you get me and you mm-hmm. care about me. That's all it really means. But um, and the professional competency piece is important. I think what mm-hmm. I observe, unfortunately, is that many financial advisors, when it comes to professional competency, want to prove how smart they are. And it's not about that. It's way more about your ability as financial advisor to solve the problem the client didn't even realize that they had. When you're mm-hmm. able to do that, solve a problem for a client that they didn't even realize existed, Again, they're going to, this person is way better than anyone else mm-hmm. I've talked to. This person really gets me in my specific situation mm-hmm. and they're going to help me going forward. So professional competency is not just, you know, how smart are you? Or again, what kind of investment returns have you been able to generate? Um, mm-hmm. It's way more pr- important than that. Um, but the, yeah. I think the key to the whole trust equation is just this, that, you know, Phil, I'm sure you experienced this early in your career at early in your career. That, you know, you know, you're a trustworthy person, you know, that I've known that about you because I've known you since college, I I would trust you with anything, Mm -hmm. but prospects don't, they got your names from someone at their country club and they don't know whether or not they should trust you. So it's frustrating early in your career as you're trying to build a practice because, you know, you feel like, why don't these people just give me the money as opposed to saying, let me talk to my, you know, son-in-law first, let me talk to my Mm -hmm. attorney, let me. But it's the trust equation is a way to explicitly and over time create those interactions with clients and prospects where trust starts to be built on an ongoing basis. And again, I, I go back to the 1980s, 1990s, when it was all about, oh, you're a member at this country club. I'm a member at this country club. Yeah, we should be doing business together. It's, those days are long gone, thank goodness. Right. And now it's much more about what can you do that's really going to help me achieve the outcomes I want to uh, create for my clients or for my, for my family. Yeah. And and so it's, uh, and we talk about this often, who you are matters more than what you know, but it's, uh, what do you stand for is the other piece. And that's what I'm hearing. You know, this mission piece comes up, you've said it probably seven, eight times in our conversation so far. And one of the things that, uh, for a lot of firms, and I heard this from one of my clients' top advisor who said, I don't want core values and mission to be words on a wall, which so many times that is. So true. And I just love that comment. I'm not going to, it can't be words on a wall, it has to be lived. 
Mm-hmm. So, and so uh, this is just excellent. Uh, so in coaching clients, uh, John, Sea Captain emphasizes conducting an effective client review meeting that offers advisors the opportunities to differentiate themselves from competitors and spark referrals. This is the all in line with that who you are concept. Can you share your thoughts about how client review meetings offer a chance to expand relationships? I have to say, I think the client review is the single most important thing that an advisor can do and really do well. And unfortunately, again, what I see is, you know, a lot of advisors who come into the office 8 a.m. see, oh my gosh, we've got XYZ client review this afternoon. We better get some stuff together and, you know, be ready to go. Um, But it needs to be way better sought out than that, way better planned out and have a specific sequence to it. And the sequence is all about making sure that A, you have control of the meeting, but B, that when we get back to that trust equation, that's the most important element of the effective kind of client review is that you're building trust explicitly with that client in a very well thought out way. So if it's all about professional competency, how do you prove your professional competency with the client? That's really important. You can't make the assumption that the client gets what you do well and how you're professionally competent. You have to provide them with examples of that consistently over time for them to build more and more trust with you. And as a result of that, provide you with very specific referrals of the types of clients that you'd like to have more of, right? And so professional competency comes down to saying, providing in a sequenced manner, examples of what you've done for that client um, as a way of helping them achieve their goals and, and achieve better outcomes for themselves. It also, at the same time, prevents the client from using their own scorecard because we all know that clients oh. come in saying, oh my gosh, look at this quarter we just had. That was terrible. Look at the performance of my portfolio. This, so that becomes the emotional way of mm-hmm. dealing with the issue in the client review meeting. Client comes in hot because of their returns. And now you're back on your back, you know, you're backpedaling, trying to mm-hmm. explain why performance was what it was when that's not under your control. Uh, the mm-hmm. markets have a lot more to do with that than you know, your investment uh, portfolio right. construction. So as a result of that, the effective client review kind of helps you structure it in a way that you get to use your own scorecard. The scorecard meeting, what were your goals? You know, I call it benchmarking the beach house. You told me when we started our engagement, you wanted to be able to save up money to be able to buy a beach house down in Naples, Florida. How are we doing relative to that goal? Let's take a look at that benchmark, not how the portfolio did last quarter against uh, you know, some random benchmark. So the effective client review allows you to be very explicit about building that trust over time. But again, it has to be you're in control. You've got a very specific structure as to how things are sequenced in the meeting. The information is provided, how it's provided, when it's provided. And I've seen the outcome. As a result of that, Mm -hmm. when you're providing examples of professional competency, for example, that's when you start getting referrals from the types of clients you'd like to have. If, you know, like think of thousands of examples of that, but mm-hmm. um, of, of advisors I know who've done a very good job of talking about, um, you know, solving specific client problems. And the client comes back a week later and says, oh my gosh, you know, someone at work who has the same issue with these stock options, you know, could you help them out? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It, but it has to be a very well choreographed review as opposed to just, hey, let's take a look at last quarter's results. Well put. So, Phil, how are you doing against your benchmark of, of having a house in Sarasota? Just curious. <laughs> uh, last time I checked, uh, we're almost there. 
<laughs> He's hitting it. At- <laughs> the, uh, yeah. So, and Greg, how are you doing uh, as far as benchmark with regards to dating? How's that going? Uh, right now? Well, I am right now single by choice, uh, and that's by <laughs> choice of the women who I've been asking out. <laughs> So I will keep you posted when my status changes, but I appreciate your concern uh, about that. I'm sorry. Good help. All right. So I, I do. So Phil, do you want to tag on any, add on anything to that? Not this one. I think we got it. Uh, I think we probably need to wrap this thing. Put one a bow more on question um, yeah. that I'm going to, John, this has been a great conversation. I'm going to go back to our Jesuit high school days and throw out an extra credit question. <laughs> That uh, see how you do it. That could even pull you up uh, to a, a higher bracket. Honestly, so you introduced me to the concept of behavioral finance and how the application of psychology to financial behavior and its effect on markets. So, how prevalent do you think applying behavioral wealth management principles is among your advisor clients? I mean, you kind of just touched on it with keeping emotions in check, uh, but I'm I'd- curious to see if that's still a theme. Yeah, I do think that it's fortunately getting more prevalent by the at the firm level. So more and more communications materials are taking into consideration oh. the sort of um, right. mental heuristics that that clients unfortunately you know suffer from. I, the the great book I would encourage everyone to read is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And there, you know, there are two systems that the brain uses to be able to make decisions and make judgments about what's what's happening. Um, and system two is kind of the logical part of the brain that uses emotion, uses logic and, and data mm-hmm. to make decisions. Mm-hmm. The problem is with that part of the brain, it gets tired when it's been taking in a lot of information. And so then clients will revert back to system one, which is the the emotional part of the brain. And the, mm-hmm. the important thing, I think, for financial advisors or anyone dealing with, with individual investors is that you have to realize when someone is using system one thinking, when they're calling you in the midst of a downturn in the market, and they're scared about what's going on because of what they're seeing on CNBC, they're using system one thinking. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're humans. We do that. But you've mm-hmm. got to get them back using system two thinking. And the way to do that is to use data and to, to use evidence to show someone that what they're experiencing right now is an emotional reaction to what they're seeing on TV right now. And the reality is that over the long term, we've got a plan in place. You're meeting your objectives and goals, and we're going to get there eventually. But that system one versus system two thinking, it's important for advisors to understand what's going on so they can you know, really kind of customize their communications with the client based on where that client is. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is the client feels ignored. The client feels like they're not being heard because you just total, I, I told you I was afraid and you said, mm-hmm. don't worry, it's going to be okay. Instead of trying to transition someone from emotional to a logical, rational way of thinking using data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And listening and being proactive, yes. you know, as when the markets are down, that's a great teaching opportunity. Not every advisor sees it that way. They're in, under their desk in the fetal position <laughs> until it ends, right? Uh-huh. So you, you, so to have that happen is so critical. How can you be in front of the behavior uh, shift? Yeah. Because as soon as somebody questions it, you're on the defensive from that point forward. So with that, we are wrapping here today. John, other mm-hmm. than a great 
college story about Greg and his behavior. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're moving on. I killed and captured all those stories uh, before the podcast. (laughs) It's uh, John, it's been a pleasure to spend the time and, and as much as we were friends and and have stayed in contact. I don't think we've ever had a serious discussion about things we talked about today. I know. And at this level, uh, that's I, for I, sure. Yeah, it was fascinating. It, it really was. And so what a pleasure. What a great, great uh, source for good that you are. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on today. Oh, it's an honor. I really enjoy the podcast and really, I mean, you two are two of my favorite people in the whole world. So I'd I'd spend any time at all with you, but it is fun to be in a different environment where we're not surrounded by Bud Light uh, and the like, and <laughs> actually talking about things that matter as opposed to nonsense. And you know, the that comes later. It's only forty-five Central. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. We'll uh, talk soon. All right, Prof, all right thanks, thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Sea Captain Way Podcast. If you found the conversation valuable, please like, share, and post a review on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Sea Captain Coaching and how you can start taking advantage of our purpose-driven coaching guidance, visit us at seacaptaincoaching.com and get the Sea Captain view on navigating uncharted waters of growth. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow us at Sea Captain Coaching on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Wishing you fair winds and a following sea on your journey.